This is an ABC podcast. On ABC RN, hi, I'm Kylie Morris. Thanks for joining me for Between the Lines. Flags flew at half-mast and thousands lined the streets of Tokyo this week to farewell Japan's former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. The Zozoji Temple had to cut short its opening hours when it was overwhelmed with mourners. Donna Weeks is a professor at Tokyo's Musashino University where she teaches Japanese politics and peace studies. Donna, the killing of former Prime Minister Abe is really a seismic event in Japan's national life. You've been teaching students this week. How are they responding? What are, what are their thoughts? Yes, look, I, I was teaching, in fact, a Japanese politics class yesterday and I did quite deliberately take some time uh, from the planned discussion to give the students an opportunity to talk through this. I've been teaching here now for six or seven years. This cohort of students in their around about 2021, and I've always asked them, you know, who is the most impressionable uh, Prime Minister for you in in your lives? And, you know, 80% of them over the years have said Abe Shinzo has been the most impressionable one for them. And so when it came to the news, and earlier this week was the first chance I had to talk to them, a lot of them were, were shocked of course. Some felt they'd lost, some expressed it as felt like I lost a a close relative. Uh, Others said, look, I I didn't like his politics, but even so, it's such a shock. And again, a lot of them saying, how could something like a a gun death uh, happen in Japan? It was quite a shock to them. It gave them some resolve to go out and vote, though, which I found that interesting. Voting's not compulsory here. Donna, do you have a sense of whether it's shaken their view of the kind of nation they're living in, the kind of country Japan is? Is it that big an event in their political lives or is it more this sense of personal grief, the connection they had with Shinzo Abe? Mm. I don't think any they've really come to terms yet with how big it will be historically and, and whether you could quite put it in those terms as yet. Some of them are still at that point of, how did it happen? See, the, the the context of this is that it's part of the campaign rallying for an upper house election. Um, you know, the, the, the politicians do this for, for 18 days in the lead up. What a lot of the shock is, is that Abe was just out doing what many of the political leaders do, go out, support a candidate, speak to the local people, encourage them to vote. And I think still at this stage, it's the fact that it was such an ordinary event uh, and and something like this could have happened that that is where people are still trying to to make sense of, of it all. As you say, the former PM, he was at a rally, wasn't he, for an LDP candidate, a candidate from his party in Nara, Mm. um, and apparently very little security at that rally. But is that true of most local level campaigning? Look, it's it's interesting. I was reflecting on this as well. I spend a lot of time myself going to these campaigns. Um, 
I call it going around on the hustings because it, for me as a political scientist, I get a sense of what people are thinking, uh, how they're reacting and responding and, and so on to the politicians. And likewise, how are the politicians and candidates themselves actually acting with members of the public, their potential voters? And, you know, there's there's been a lot said about the security. You know, he's a former prime minister. Why wasn't there more security? Why, you know, how did this, this come about? And I think... You know, the, the rallies I've been to, in fact, I went to the very first one on the first day, 22nd of June, because I had seen that former Prime Minister Abe was going to be speaking there and also former Prime Minister Suga. And I thought, well, that's an interesting start, you know, two former Prime Ministers at one rally. And as I was reflecting on that this morning, uh, having taught it in, in class this week, with former Prime Minister Suga, I got a very close-up shot of him because he came into the crowds, he came up the stairs and, and was mingling amongst the crowds for quite some time, along with his candidate, also from the LDP. Prime Minister Abe, who was on a couple of hours later, though, he was he certainly had a lot of security people with him, but he didn't mingle for as long. And, and there was a, a sense that he was a lot more high profile and so people were a lot closer and yeah, he might have been going on to the next rally as well was was the other thing. But mm. I, I did notice a distinct difference between the the sort of security between the two, even back on day one. So how, um, and yeah. how how significant are these events? How often do voters in Japan get to see their politicians up close? You know, is this kind of campaigning important in that it connects the political class to ordinary Japanese voters? Oh, look, in, in the 18 days of campaigning, I could spend all day, every day, you know, working my way around, just around Tokyo, going to all these events. Um, they're at the smallest of local train stations, you know, where I get on the train in the morning to come to work. They're at the large interchange stations, you know, with thousands of people. You know, for, for everybody who stops and listens, there, there might be three or four people who walk past. But even so, you know, um, at, at the larger rallies, you can get four or 5,000 people standing there listening, taking the flyers or whatever material that's being handed out. And people will listen. Occasionally you'll get a kind of a, a bit of a heckling voice in there as well. But to me it's always been a really valuable part and an important part, I think, of the electoral process because whereas in, in other places candidates might go behind closed doors to media only or special invited guests uh, and we get to see it later on TV, as I say to my students, here's a chance for you to go and listen for yourself to the candidate and get involved and ask questions, you know, and when they're finished, go up and ask them, say hello. And, you know, it's, it's always been for me an important part and I've been doing this for a long time and, uh, you know, people engage on all sorts of levels, so yes. I'm Kylie Morris. You're listening to Between the Lines on RN. Donna Weeks is our guest. She chairs the Department of Political Science at Musashino University in Tokyo. Um, Donna, can we talk a little bit about Shinzo Abe himself? You mentioned uh, at the start of our chat that uh, the students you're teaching felt a deep connection with him, even if they didn't agree his po with his politics. They had a sense that someone significant to them personally had been lost after his assassination. Why is that? Why is Shinzo Abe the kind of person who cuts through so many layers of Japanese society, do you think? One thing, and particularly you know, looking at it from the perspective of students, I mean, why is he the really the only 
politician of any significance in their lives at this stage is that, of course, he made his comeback, his second comeback after the tsunami and earthquake disaster in the Tohoku region and subsequently stayed in power then for about eight years. And so his mark inevitably was going to be influential and impressionable that way simply because of the length of time. Previously, the LDP had limits on the length of time that the president of the party could be prime minister, but Abe managed to convince members of the party along the way that, well, let's extend it from a limit of two years to three years and let's extend those three-year limits from two terms to three terms. And so he was actually uh, in his third term when he resigned in 2020 through illness. Now, there's lots of areas, both domestically and internationally, that Abe really made his mark. And I've been interested in the overseas reportage of his assassination and the, the way that many people, many dignitaries around the world have been lauding his achievements on an international level and uh, what he achieved there. And I guess domestically, people are still, well, in coming to terms with it, but also realising that perhaps domestically he didn't achieve really what he had set out to do in terms of his abenomics, which was the term given to his economic program. There's been a, a noticeable growing gap between the wealthy and the poor and, and, and homeless and so on. Students feel that a little bit. You know, that the COVID response had a lot of problems with it too. So while he's lauded internationally, you know, domestically, there are still lots of questions and, and things around, you know, some of the scandals that he got tied up with. And as, as more is coming out about the suspect you know, the involvement with some religious groups and and other groups that really sort of drove his agenda as well, you know, going to come under more scrutiny, I think. The New York Times uh, wrote about him comparing him to other nationalistic leaders like Vladimir Putin and China's President Xi, but I think noting that he was different in that rather than undermining democracy and expanding autocracy by their judgment. He tried to use Japanese nationalism to strengthen the global alliance of democracies. Does that ring true to you, that even though he had a fixed idea of what Japan should be and the role that it should play, it was to act in concert with other regional partners? Yes, and I guess Japanese nationalism comes in many colours. Look, there's there's lots of elements of for him to have done what he he did domestically. There's you, you could argue that he's been undermining democracy domestically um, by pushing through his agenda. Um, there's there's been some undermining of of some of the democratic institutions in in Japan that's of of much concern. The the media as well, you know, and and uh, and they're sort of falling from higher ranks in in those sort of international leagues. So. The, I mean, the the quad, for example, that that most people have been talking about, and I'll put on the table that I'm a quad uh, sceptic. I mean, what what Abe was doing with his idea of Japanese nationalism that concerns people in the region is that, interesting, although I've been in 
studying politics long enough to, to I started when Abe's father was foreign minister and, and had a particular vision of Japan. It's always intrigued me that Abe, instead of uh, pursuing his father's vision, went back to his grandfather, who Kishi, who's, who's well known for having a much stronger, uh, let's say, nationalistic uh, approach, wanting to restore some of the mm, pre-war let's say, imperialist ideas of Japan, I suppose. And so in trying to, and, and with a lot of these groups that, that he's been linked to along the way, you know, there's a, it's not so much a, a consolidation of democracies as more an anti-communism kind of approach that he's been pushing through. Now, you know, the development of the Quad, uh, you know, he wrote about that in his book in, that he wrote in 2006, and he linked it directly back to what his father, his grandfather had tried to achieve with India. Australia was a little bit of a, you know, last sentence in that chapter about it. But nonetheless, his idea that, you know, India, uh, Japan, the United States and Australia would have some uh, shared democratic ideals. I mean, at the time I thought, well, you know, it's being a little bit exclusive uh, given the region. It, it, you might want to think about, say, bringing in South Korea or something. So I found that an exclusive sort of uh, idea. And, you know, when you look at the democracies of those four countries, I mean, the democracies and values, I mean, they're all really quite different ideas as well. In, in terms of, Donna, that, that nationalism that we've been discussing, so an Abe protege to some extent is now Prime Minister Fumio Kishida, uh, and he has said this week he will push ahead with plans to change the wartime constitution that, of course, was imposed on Japan by the US after the Second World War. That was always a dream of Shinzo Abe. Why is that something that Shinzo Abe wanted changed? To what purpose? Well, I guess to... To be able to put Japan on the world stage as a military equal, um, you know, Article Nine, which is the peace article, the the article that most focus is is given to, um, you know, does prevent Japan going to war and, in fact, having any military forces at all. And for a lot on the right and that that nationalistic uh, fervour, with that being imposed on them, as they say, by the Americans. Now, there's a lot more nuance in that debate, of course, that we we don't have time to go through. But, um, yeah, it's seen as, you know, bringing Japan back to the Japanese, that it's much more important that Japan can stand on its its own two feet. Um, So for Kishida is in an interesting position. He His political base, is, of course, is Hiroshima. And even when he was standing for the presidency, um, you know, he made a part of his, for him, it's important that, you know, we consider an anti-nuclear weapons world. And yet he's also trying to balance this with uh, what uh, Abe was trying to do. Now, of course, with, with the death of Abe, uh, certainly Kishida has been talking about pushing on now with with constitutional revision. It's not at the top of the list. I mean, there are a lot of other things that uh, this election has shown that people are concerned about. But given now that he's got three years until the next election, uh, given that he ostensibly has the numbers uh, now in the House, if the pro-constitutional change parties can agree on some sort of coalition, Um, He has promised uh, a robust debate through Parliament, which is a 
small deviation from, I guess, what Abe's uh, intentions were. And, of course, it has to go to a national referendum. And so there's still a long way to go with that. Um, whether or not Kishida now and, and the LDP want to now push that through as part of Abe's uh, of legacy and use that uh, down the track to to get the changes is, I guess, something we'll have to wait to see. But it's certainly there as an option, I think. Just finally, Donna, we're all reading and hearing about speculation of the motivation of the gunman, you know, whether he this was a, a political act or uh, an act by an individual with a with a particular grievance that meant he blamed Shinzo Abe for something that had happened in his family. Is it solidifying into a firmer um, single motivation for you there or is it still swirling around in, in the realm of discussion? Let's say it's still swirling around in the realm of discussion. I mean, it's it's interesting as an Australian when uh, here in Japan, you know, so much detail can come out about what suspects have allegedly said to police and, and so on when, you know, normally this sort of thing shouldn't be spoken about too much. So kind of uncomfortable in that way, even, even speculating. Um, but, yes, it, there, there does seem, I mean, the the Unification Church has come out and, and given a, a press conference as well. They now realise that they're um, caught up in, in all this. I suspect it looks like it will be you know, a grudge that, that he held. He was planning to uh, go to a number of Abe's uh, rallies um, and he's, you know, he does take it back to Abe's grandfather, Kishi, for bringing this particular group uh, to Japan. So I, th I think it will perhaps be more looking at it as a, as a grudge that one person's held rather than a, well, you know, it's political violence and, and political and politics is caught up in it. Um, but I, I think he has, uh, yes, yeah, some some personal sort of vendetta that, that he wanted to uh, follow through with, I guess. Donna, thanks so much for your insights and thanks for joining us on Between the Lines. Thank you for asking. Donna Weeks is a professor at Tokyo's Musashino University where she teaches Japanese politics and peace studies. Coming up, you'll hear from a leading American journalist and author on the housing crisis in the US. Under a footbridge, on top of a subway vent, in tents strewn along a sidewalk. People's sleeping rough have few good options in America's housing crisis, and they are growing in number. Iconic cities like San Francisco and Los Angeles are on the front line, where sky-high rents and too little housing supply impoverish a population of people already living on the edge. Connor Doherty is a New York Times journalist, and he's written the book Golden Gates, Fighting for Housing in America. Connor, at the moment, if you walk around a city on the west coast of the US, so a city like Los Angeles or San Francisco, how does the housing crisis reveal itself to you? So I think even though everyone is struggling with housing, all but the very, very wealthy are struggling with housing, the most obvious way is homelessness. Uh, you cannot drive under a freeway overpass. You cannot navigate a downtown 
you can't even, you know, go to beaches or, um, you know, side streets without seeing tens of thousands of people across the entire state living outside. In the most extreme versions, you see people in you know, pretty extensive tent cities. But even side, there, there are side streets and other areas where you can see that there's entire communities of recreational vehicles, that sort of thing. So I think the most apparent way you can see it is all these people living outside or, or in their cars. And is it markedly worse? Is it markedly deteriorating for folks when it comes to them being able to access housing in the sense that California for a long time has been known for somewhere where you go and there is homelessness and visible on the streets, certainly in San Francisco and in Los Angeles. But has the scale of that now changed? Yes, homelessness has been growing for several years Just to give you a sense of how bad it is on the West Coast, there are about 200,000 people in the United States who live outside, meaning what is called in the uh, government jargon, unsheltered homelessness. And more than half of those people live in California. I would, I, I, I would, I would guess it's a, it's a decent majority of them are on the West Coast. So we are really the most visible part of the homeless problem in the United States. And it has gotten much worse over the past couple of years. It got worse because housing prices were growing pretty rapidly leading up to the pandemic. And then it just got that much worse during the pandemic because you know, job insecurity, as well as uh, people understandably wanting less crowded households, you know, fraying relationships, that sort of thing. So it's, it's this problem that has, as you sort of stated, been around for a while and maybe it got a little bit worse at different times. And now it's exploded into this, this problem that I think has really overwhelmed the state. You look at any public opinion poll in California and housing and homelessness are the number one issues. I would bet you that's true in Oregon and Washington, at least the big cities as well. All the political campaigns here are now completely suffocated by this issue. Even our attorney general, which is, you know, a position that's often talking about state law and that sort of thing, in elections for attorney general, people are now asking, oh, well, how are you going to enforce housing laws? Which is not a question people asked in the past, right? So at every level, people are asking for solutions, demanding you know, the problem be addressed. But of course, like I said, and as you sort of alluded to in your question, this has been growing for a long time and you can't just solve it overnight. So it's led to incredible frustration. When you talk about the demand from voters for for politicians to fix the situation, but the kind of problem you're describing, and certainly when you overlay the COVID pandemic Uh, on top of the situation that already existed. It seems though there aren't direct, necessarily direct political levers to correct this. You know, was there a particular government policy in the first place that contributed to the crisis? Has it helped the crisis to develop? No, I mean, that is the, the answer is like yes and no. At some level, over a long period of time, we have absolutely created government policies that lead to more homelessness. We don't have sufficient 
um, housing subsidies for people. Uh, we don't have really public housing or or some sort of last resort housing. We have restrictive zoning laws that make it very difficult to build lower cost housing. We have, in California in particular, make it difficult to build any kind of housing. And that leads to this kind of gentrification effect where you have pretty wealthy people living in less wealthy areas in part because they've been priced out of other places or there just isn't sufficient inventory for them. So in that sense, it is all the government. But as you said in your question, because it happened over that long period of time, there was not an easy lever. There was not a, oh, well, if we spend X billion dollars, we can solve this tomorrow, right? There's not, that solution does not exist. Connor, let's talk about the people for a moment. Among these almost kind of small cities of homelessness that you describe, towns at least of homelessness that you describe on, on the West Coast, who are the people who make up the majority of that population? Who are the people who are most vulnerable to homelessness? It's a great question. And in that sense, homelessness is a mirror reflection of many of the problems in America. So. A large segment of the homeless population is black, even though that's a, a minority population of the American population. Many trans and LGBTQ kids, uh, you know, kind of when I say kids, I mean, you know, in their 20s, are, uh, are part of it, you know, very vulnerable segment of society. Um, huge amount of homeless population, I think possibly a majority is older folks, over 50. And many of those people have lived on the margins of economic life for their entire lives. And now they've, you know, meaning working menial jobs and always kind of being on the edge. And now they're over the edge. And that, what does that reflect? It reflects that we have a great prejudice in this country. It reflects that we have a pretty brutal system in which if you aren't able to secure a good job, you're just kind of thrown out. It reflects that we have a lot of loneliness, a lot of fraying ties. There are some social elements to this. So I think if you can think of who's vulnerable <laughs> to kind of being poor or being in poverty, that is the group that is disproportionately homeless. I want to just add that drugs and psychiatric problems are obviously highly associated with homelessness but they are not the reason we have homelessness. Um, I think the cost of housing and our insufficient safety net are the biggest factors, but I think people like to say that it's drugs and psychiatric problems because I guess it, it kind of shifts the blame from society to individuals, but I'm waffling here because obviously you can, there are plenty of homeless people who are obviously not well and need care whether it's uh, psychiatric you know mental health care or you know the need to get clean but there are all sorts of people in those states who are in more generous countries and or states where it costs less and they they are not living on the street the same way so the variable is the cost of housing but of course it's associated with all these other vulnerabilities i guess too you're not immune if you're on the street to 
the realities of kind of macroeconomics when I see that inflation's rising at 9%. Is, is that right in, in the US Yes, currently? just out today, yes. So how do those kinds of, you know, bigger picture realities, economic realities, trickle down to create a situation where homelessness is more, more likely, one assumes? Well, homeless people are more connected to the economy than we like to think, or than is commonly thought. So a huge amount of homeless folks work. I think more than a majority are on some sort of, a, a strong majority of homeless people either work or are already on a government assistance plan, usually social security, which is aid for senior citizens, or social security disability, which is aid for people who are no longer physically able to work. So those people are just as vulnerable to increases in prices as anybody else. So, I mean, yeah, you know, if you're driving an RV, you're totally hurt by gas prices. If you are um, buying food, you know, that's less money you have for food each week. So it's a huge problem for them as well as anybody else. I mean, if you think about homeless folks, they're people who are very deprived <laughs> of the basic necessities of life. And if the, they're on the edge already, and if the cost of everything goes up, uh, they're going to be even more on the edge. Connor, we're seeing here, certainly related to um, extreme weather events, fires, flooding most recently here, and where people, there is a sudden insecurity to not only our livelihoods, but also our, our home situation. Uh, insurance prices are rocketing. The chance that you can rebuild after an event like that strikes your town are not particularly strong unless you're in a very solid financial position. Are you seeing that trickling in, in the US too, where you have those kinds of disasters, you know, basically making, rendering people suddenly vulnerable who might not have been beforehand, and now they find themselves among that homeless population you describe? Yeah, I think definitely that's an issue. Uh, I haven't heard that come up quite the way you described it. And I'm, as I'm sitting here on the phone with you, thinking about why that might be. I think, uh, you know, a lot of the biggest fires we've had in California seem to have disproportionately affected single family home areas because they are the most likely to be in the sprawled kind of urban wild area interface, right? So, you know, many of the apartments where people who live who are very vulnerable tend to be in more urbanized areas that are less prone to wildfire. But that said, we have a huge overcrowding population in the far out suburbs. But I mean, anything that causes people to lose their homes when so many people are on the edge, you know, and, and lose their means of working and other things, is, is going to affect the homelessness more because, it, you know, like I said, it's this kind of disease we have. It's a disease of deprivation. When I say disease, I mean a social disease that we have shockingly allowed to happen at such a large level in this country. And anything that pushes you more economically towards the edge is going to exacerbate it more. 
I will add though that um, you know, at some level in California, one of our biggest problems is we make it very difficult to build housing and difficult to build affordable housing. And sometimes it feels like the wildfire issue has has kind of, I don't know, added an excuse for us to not build housing. So I think it, it's also hurt the political situation. Everything in housing is so interconnected. It's so complex, isn't it? I'm just thinking that as, you, as you're talking, there's so many interwoven factors. Because well, at some large level, we're talking about the structure of civilization. You know, where you live, where schools are, where are we put housing, you know, how much do we build? How much, I mean, it all kind of gets to this kind of who are we kind of question. So it, it inevitably touches everything. On that note, the who are we note, um, there's a movement called Yimby in the US. There, there's some of it going on here as well, but it's not very widely known. Explain to me the Yimby approach. So in my book, I feel like the Yimbies were a big, you know, big, large kind of portion of it. And I met this woman one day. I was writing about housing and I, uh, I met this woman who had showed up to a city council meeting and said, oh, I'm from a group called BARF, <laughs> which stands for the Bay Area Renters Federation. And it's just a group she kind of made up. It's this woman, Sonia. And she showed up at this equivalent of a city council meeting and said, we need to build more housing. There are a lot of young people like me, she was in her 30s at the time, who've moved to the Bay Area to work and to, um, you know, kind of have fun and, you know, start our lives. And there's not enough housing for us and you need to build more housing. And she really just showed up as a regular person uh, at the time was a teacher. And from that, this whole movement of young people, typically younger college educated people who move to big, vibrant cities looking to start their careers. They just all started out showing up to these meetings and all demanding that they build build more housing in the city. And it's a very interesting movement because it politically is sort of hard to pin down because they are very in favor of public housing and subsidized housing and other kinds of uh, sort of social justice housing. But they're also very for market rate housing that a young professional like them might live in. So sometimes they're sort of painted as being the ally of developers in a in a strict sense they are but other times they're kind of pushing this much more leftist agenda than is typical in the United States and i think that's what makes them really interesting because it it has like a little bit of a common sense vibe to it but also it's a very and i, I would guess the same thing is happening over there it's a very generational battle that there's this older group of folks who were around and buying homes when the government was really building homes and promoting home ownership and building out the cities that people now love. Uh, and, and now their home values are very high and, and they complain that their children can't afford to live in the city uh, where they grew up. And many of the Yimbis kind of like are those children. <laughs> and that's why I find them fascinating because they, they're kind of like yelling at their parents in a lot of sense. You know, th their parents are the NIMBYs and not in my backyard is YIMBY is a, is a, is an answer to NIMBY, which is not in my backyard. So I'm guessing YIMBY is yes in my backyard. Yes, okay. exactly. Yeah. Anyway, I just find them fascinating for that reason, because they are hard to pin down politically and much more so than a sort of 
ideology, they just seem like they're waging a generational battle with people who already own homes. On a single issue. They're kind of a single, yes. a, a, an informal single issue party almost. Yes. And, and I think that's why it's hard to really make a true movement out of it because exactly who they're allied with is not always clear. Connor, just finally, you have done so much work on this and your your book is thick with thinking about this problem and where it's emerged from and who's caught in the jaws of it. Is there a moment now where you can sit back and go, you know what, fundamentally, if these things were changed, then we'd go close to ending homelessness. I'm not asking you for a solution to the problem, but I kind of am. <laughs> Is there, well, I'm no, just wondering, I've, in your research, is there, you know, have you been struck by, you know what, here's the, here's the problem and this would make a massive difference? I feel like I have a different answer to this each week and in, in each month because as we talked, the problem is so complex. But I think at a very large level, you have to sort of ask yourself, a society has to ask itself, how much housing do we need and where should it go? And I think that we fail to do that. In the Bay Area, for instance, we created you know, tens and hundreds of thousands of tech jobs and never built any housing for that, right? And nobody, there was nobody ever sitting there going, well, you know, we are inviting all these people to this region and we haven't really thought through where they're going to live. And I think at a large level, we do that throughout society. We don't go, okay, well, we have a giant service class that makes minimum wage and we don't have anywhere near enough housing for them, well, how are we going to do that? Pure and simple, we need to ask ourselves how much housing we need and for whom, and then where are we going to put it and plan for that and adjust it as time changes. It's a very simple answer with that is almost impossible to implement, but it strikes me that there's no other way other than that. Well, it's an essential ingredient, surely, for, for town planners as we watch our cities grow and have to make decisions about how people are going to live. But, Connor, we appreciate your time so much today. And I appreciate yours. Thank you. That's Connor Doherty, a writer and journalist, talking to us about the housing crisis in the US. So that's the American experience. What about Australia? That's next. So Connor Doherty there taking us back to basics. Build more houses, he says. Plan well to avoid a shortage and welcome advocates into the political process. This is a social disease, he says, that is immune to any single policy fix. David Pearson is the CEO of the Australian Alliance to End Homelessness. Hi, David. Hi. Thanks for having me. Listen, there's so much to unpack around this issue, but let's start with an overview of the Australian situation. Um, Connor Doherty described an exponential growth in homelessness in the US made that much worse by the pandemic. What are we seeing here? Well, we've got a bad situation getting worse to sort of really take it at a high level summary, but it's potentially not as bad as in the United States because what we've seen is state governments really step up in response to, to the pandemic and put in place programs that have really supported people who've been experiencing homelessness. The challenge is they're ad hoc, 
They're not across the board. There's no consistency. Um, and a lot of them are short term. Um, and some of the funding is starting to be turned off. So we've seen a bad situation getting worse, made a little bit better by the COVID responses, um, and it's getting worse again. Of course, one of the major differences one assumes is that America, federally at least, doesn't have a public housing program in the same way as we do here. So one imagines that must give us some kind of a buffer between people reaching a kind of an impoverished state and then being, you know, out on the streets. Yeah, it does. Um, the challenge we have, though, is that some of the challenges they have we face as well. Um, but there are differences between the United States and Australia. I've just completed a sort of three-week study tour of the US, actually, um, learning about their efforts to end homelessness. And they are a big country and there is big diversity in what they do. And when you think about homelessness in the United States, you often think about the sort of skid row place in Los Angeles where they just have literally thousands of people on the street every night. Um, we don't have that mass level of poverty, but the, the what they do have in the United States is they have pockets of excellence where they've got communities that have actually ended homelessness in some places. So it's a big country with big diversity, um, but they don't have the strong safety nets that we have in terms of our income support system, in terms of a universally accessible health system, at least in, in practice, in, in principle, our health system is universally accessible. And, of course, we've invested more in public housing throughout Australian history, but that investment is not keeping pace with the growth, and that's why we're seeing increasing homelessness. So who are the homeless in Australia? Can you? Is that easy to define? The definitions are relatively easy. Actually knowing how many people are experiencing homelessness, the tragedy of that is, is that the United States are better than that. So they actually count how many people are experiencing homelessness every year. In Australia, we do it through the census um, every five years. It's And the estimates that we have at the moment of how much homelessness there is in Australia is, you know, six years old. So the estimates that we have from the ABS, the, the census data shows that there's about 116,000 people who are experiencing homelessness on any given night. And then there's different types of homelessness, right? So there's rough sleeping that most people would be familiar with, you know, sleeping out, sleeping in cars, those sorts of things. That's only about 8,000 of that full 116,000. And then the rest of it's made up of people who are in supported accommodation or temporary accommodation or, you know, overcrowding or couch surfing and, and those sorts of things. So it's a pretty diverse group. Um, and what we don't do in Australia is measure what's actually going on very well. And if you don't measure, if this is the argument that the organisation that I lead, the Australian Alliance to End Homelessness, if you don't measure, you can't manage. And we're not managing homelessness very well in Australia because it's bad getting worse, as I said. Let's talk solutions for a moment. You intrigued me earlier mm. when you said that you thought in the US certain communities were doing this very well and were kind of managing the problem and had specific plans to tackle it. Can you tell us a little about that? Yeah, well, you just mentioned it there, like having specific plans to do it. What What is the plan to end homelessness in Australia? Like they have plans to do that in some communities in the United States and because they've created a plan and they've created a way to measure that and then they've rallied community and governments to support that plan, they now have 14 communities in the United States that have ended homelessness for particular groups, so home, rough sleeping homelessness or veterans rough sleeping homelessness, so not for the whole scale of the problem of homelessness, but for particular bits. 
And I think whilst that is small, I do think that's inspiring and that is a solution. And part of the challenge in the housing and homelessness space is we're just overwhelmed with how bad the situation is and we analyse the problems and we talk about how bad everything is, but there are solutions out there. This is a problem, homelessness is a problem that was created by public policy and it can be solved by public policy, but you have to have the leadership and the plans and the investment to make that happen. Is there a common methodology, these communities that you describe who have successfully tackled the problem, is there a common methodology that they share that other communities could draw upon to try and successfully end homelessness? Yeah, absolutely. I think that it starts with knowing what the nature of the problem in your community is and and knowing that sort of in real time. So they've created what's called a by name list, each of these 14 communities, and they know by name everyone experiencing homelessness. And that does not sound like the most radical concept in the world. But if you ask most communities in the US or in Australia, how many people are experiencing homelessness in your community right now? Um, some service providers could tell you some of the solutions, some of the, some of the numbers and names of the people, and other service providers can tell you that, and some government agencies can tell you. But there's rarely, if ever, one list that has everyone, particularly those who are experiencing rough sleeping homelessness, on that list. And so they started by creating a by-name list and using that list to better triage the scarce housing they have, um, to give it to those who are the most vulnerable and stop people cycling in and out of homelessness and, and do prevention of homelessness rather than just helping people out of their homelessness and into housing that we know that we have a lack of. So it's a little bit of all of those things. It looks different in every community, but it, it really starts with a plan, with data um, and triaging the scarce resources that you've got. I guess there's a grassroots component or a grassroots aspect to solving the other part of this problem, which is the housing shortage, that there's just not enough affordable housing within people's reach. Uh, And certainly Connor was talking about that YIMBY movement in the States, which I know is also present here, where you have motivated members of the community kind of urging on construction of housing or development of housing that might mean that it lifts the pressure on capacity. Absolutely. And I think that yimbyism, a way of thinking about it is fantastic. And that's like what I was saying before about those communities coming together. That's very grassroots of community saying, we're going to identify the nature of the problem and then work collaboratively with all levels of government to solve the problem and hold them to account if they don't work collaboratively, right? But at the end of the day, you need additional investment and you need more resources to support. And you've got to also build that grassroots support for it because, Political leaders make the investments where they think their community cares. Um, and we've got to make sure that the community and governments understand that investment in housing is something that our community wants to happen. And the approach that we take as the Australian Alliance to End Homelessness, which is very informed by those 14 communities in the United States, is that it's really community and, and community voice is most powerful at the local level. And rather than what we often do in Australia is we say, look, this problem of 116,000 people who are experiencing homelessness, we need 116,000 properties this year, then next year and the year after. And we keep making the problem bigger and bigger and bigger and go to government and say, we need trillions of dollars to invest. And government go, we just can't handle that. Um, It's too big a problem to digest. And so what we're saying is let's break the problem up and go to the governments locally and federally and say, 
in the community that I live in, so for example, in Adelaide in South Australia, um, we know exactly how many people are sleeping rough in the CBD today. We've created a by name list and we can go to government and say, this is what it would take to end homelessness in South Australia if you made the investments. But while we're waiting for them to make those investments, we're going to get on with improving the way our system operates um, and using, using that by name list to triage the scarce resources. And what you do from that is you free up resources. So, for example, in Australia, we know there's 8,200 people who sleep rough, basically from the census, which is ridiculously out of date. But let's accept that as the best data we've got. Out of that, about 80% of them are chronically homeless, so constantly cycling in and out of homelessness. And what we know from economic modelling is that it saves governments $13,000 a year per person to take them off the street and stop chronically experiencing homelessness and put them into permanent supportive housing. So it's cheaper to house people who are chronically homeless than it is to leave them on the street because of the costs in our health system, in our correction system, in our emergency crisis housing systems. That would save $85 million one-off just by ending that chronic homelessness cohort. But we don't have the leadership, we don't have the data, we haven't had the focus on, on making that happen, but we could do. It takes leadership and I guess the thing about in Australia is we've had a change of government and there is much more of a focus on these things. So I'm, I'm relatively optimistic that we can make improvements, but we do need a step change um, and that's going to take communities really arguing for that. It was interesting during the pandemic when the lockdowns kind of came in for so many cities uh, and even in the city that I'm in, in Newcastle, there was a moment when on the first lockdown, suddenly there were no homeless people visible. Uh, and that was because the local community care charities and others had taken steps to put them into hotel rooms, those who mm. were happy to go. Uh, and so suddenly this incredibly intractable problem that we ha all have in our heads as a very complex, uh, you know, the reasons for it are very complex, the solutions for it are potentially very complex. But overnight, it was kind of fixed temporarily. And I mm. think that that must have also changed the landscape, changed the conversation around homelessness, because when it's necessary, you, space can be found for these people. People can be given yeah, safe, warm places to sleep and to live. Absolutely. And, and you know, the initial responses to COVID was fantastic. And, and that's because, you know, Treasuries opened up the checkbook and said, right, bring everyone in. Let's get them in. We need, and, and we needed to do it because of the, the risk of the pandemic. But why did it take a pandemic to do that? And why did it only happen temporarily? <laughs> like it, it's, and we call it homelessness for a reason. It's not houselessness. And we didn't give houses to people. We gave them hotel rooms. And a lot of people went from hotel rooms back out onto the street, back into homelessness of other forms. Um, and so we made progress for a little while, but unfortunately we seem to be going backwards again. I know your organisation has been very involved in um, advocating for homeless people who might be affected by the extreme weather. So you're looking at uh, towns and cities that might be affected more certainly currently by floods in New South Wales, but by other extreme weather events and advocating to make sure that those people who are already in a vulnerable state in the community, there are plans that they will be taken care of. What's the response to that been for you? 
Yeah, it's interesting because this was sort of just something we learned recently with, with some of the floods, right? So we've really been pushing to have these by-name lists. So you understand who's homeless in your community. And the reason for that was to triage and prevent and those sorts of things we were talking about before. But when the floods hit in New South Wales and one of the communities that's been building a by-name list is in Byron Bay, um, led by the Byron Council, Byron Shire Council there, um, they realised that, hang on, we've got a list of everyone who's experiencing homelessness. Let's go out and make sure they're okay during this flood situation. And it has a really powerful and useful effect in sort of disaster response, disaster resilience, preparedness. And we know that we're seeing more and more natural disasters. You just, you can see it around us, like as the impacts of climate change are felt. So dealing with the problem of homelessness and, and making sure we identify by name the people who are experiencing homelessness and better meet their needs and plan that as part of disaster resilience is, is a sort of wasn't the intention when we started the work that we did, but it's a positive outcome of it that we've learned in recent times. And yeah, we're encouraging governments and communities to, to adopt that approach because it helps. I mean, is there a potential, do you think, that given these extreme weather events that we're going to see in the future a kind of wave of homelessness connected to problems that are de that develop through these storms and floods and fires that can't be resolved and then potentially those people drift towards the cities and we already know you know that there's a real uh, shortage of housing in the cities mm. that they might travel to yeah i think that the increasing prevalence of natural disasters increasing is just one more driver of forcing people into homelessness and a lot of people were sort of in the housing system really at the edges of it already and were pretty vulnerable situations. And so their ability to withstand a shock or, you know, some sort of incident that happens in relation to natural disasters was already minimal. So it's it's a, just one more driver of pushing people into homelessness, yeah. Unfortunately, we don't have good data or evidence on that because it's not measured enough. But, you know, you can see it. You can see the anecdotes every day when you turn on the news and you see people who've lost their homes and there aren't any other homes for them to go to because we're not building enough houses in Australia. We're not building enough affordable houses in Australia. And when it comes to those, you know, preventing people from falling into homelessness, we don't have the supports in place a lot of the time. They're, our systems are too fragmented. You know, we were talking before about one of the differences between Australia and the US is we've got a great health system. Well, we do for a lot of people, but for a lot of other people, there is huge health inequities. They can't access the health system. Um, and that is particularly the case for people experiencing homelessness. David Pearson, thanks for your insights. Really appreciate your time on Between the Lines. No worries. Thanks for having me. So that's David Pearson, who's the CEO of the Australian Alliance to End Homelessness. And that's the show. I'm Kylie Morris, sitting in for Tom Switzer. Thanks for your company. Join me again next week for more from Between the Lines here on ABC RN. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.